join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us yet another day. We ask you to speak to us. We ask that you meet with us here. And we ask that you give us a word for the day, a direction, our next step with you. God, would you show up here today in, in clear and compelling ways. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Ever thought of, you go ahead and have a seat. You go ahead and have a seat if you're watching online. Uh, you, ever, you ever think of yourself as a theologian? Any, any theologians? I don't know if you know what you just did, whether in the room or watching at home, but you just participated in a theological expression. That a song you just sang, whether you realize it or not, you declared things to be true about God, even if you had sang that song and put the negative in all the spots, that God, you're not these things. That's still practicing theology. And so when you sing a song that, God, this is who you are, you are making a statement about the character and nature of God. Or if you sat through the song or listened through the song and thought, I disagree with all of this. Those are theological positions. So you just practiced theology. Didn't say you practiced good theology. Just said you practiced theology. And I don't think we think about this often enough that when we sing these songs, we're not just singing, we are expressing our theology, the things we believe about theos, God, ology, study, the, the study of God, the things we believe to be true or not to be true about him. And so you say, this is who you are, or when all hope is lost, you will show up. These are theological expressions. These are things that you believe. The question is, why do you believe them to be true? See, there's lots of theologians in our church, in our community. In fact, I would even say everybody's a theologian. Everybody has a thought or an opinion about God. Like tonight, if I asked you 50 questions about God and you answered them, you would be giving theological answers to the questions. The question is not if you're a theologian. The question is, are you a good theologian? And why do you believe certain things to be true? It's interesting when you talk to a lot of people, the things they believe to be true are true to them because they believe them to be true. Do you catch that circular reasoning? It's incredible how many times people say, well, I believe this to be true, and when you press them on it, their answer predominantly is, well, because that's what I believe to be true. I've always believed it. My parents believed it. My grandparents believed it. Most people believe things to be true because they believe them to be true. Now, this is going to rock your 2020 world. Just because you believe something to be true does not make it true. I know, I know, I know. I'm sure, I'm sure I'll be canceled this week by telling somebody that their feelings are not preeminent, that their feelings do not trump everything. But here's the good news. Just because somebody doesn't believe what you believe doesn't make it untrue. So we're in this predicament where just because you believe something to be true doesn't make it true, and just because people around you don't believe what you believe doesn't make it untrue. The question is, why are these things true? And how do I know what I believe to be true? And how do I hold on to these things? And, and for a lot of the church and for a lot of church history, they had these things they would cling to called creeds. They would recite creeds. They would rally around creeds that as the church grew and as people came into it and they brought their feelings, their beliefs into the church, 
those beliefs and feelings were put against a creed. A, a creed is a set of beliefs that you hold to be true. Uh, and so when somebody presses against it, you're like, nope, this, this goes against the creed. This goes against the way I live. This goes against the anchor that is in my life that holds me rooted when I'm challenged and pushed from side to side. And so when the Christians were coming out of the era of Peter and Paul, they had the letters of Paul, they had the Gospels being written to them, but as challenges started to come into the church, as the theology and the things they believed to be true started taking attack, they started nailing down some creeds. They started nailing down some clarifying words that when you press in, we hold these things to be true. And so arguably the most famous one is the Apostles' Creed. Maybe you've heard it before, maybe you haven't, but this was a creed that like we sing a song, this is who you are, they would have recited this creed. And so when you came into their worship center, when you came into their home to worship, you probably heard the creed. Like, bring your beliefs with you, but we're going to put them against this creed. This is our anchor. This is our rule. This is our true north. So the Apostles' Creed, maybe you've heard it before, goes like this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. How many of you remember that? If I said it in French, some of you would probably remember it then. But, but this has been read over and over and over. This came into the church. Put your, get your thinking caps on. This came into the church in the late 300s. 300s. <laughs> Not 300 years ago, which would be awe-inspiring on its own, but 300 AD. Like 1,600 plus years, the church has been rallying around this creed to say, we need a true north. We need an anchor in the ground. We need a rule. We need a guide because our beliefs get pressed from side to side. Before that creed, we had 1 Corinthians 15. 300 years before that creed was locked down, Paul wrote some creedal thoughts on papyrus, I presume. And the church rallied around what Paul said before they had the Apostles' Creed, before the Nicene Creed came in, before the Reformation, before the Wesleyan Church, before you've done what you've done here. People have been rallying around Paul's words, and we read them to you last week, and I want to read them again. I hope you brought your Bibles. You know the speech, right? Do I have to give the speech? Pull your Bibles out, pull your phones out, bring your iPads. This isn't a shocker. I want you to see these words. And if you brought a physical Bible, you can underline and circle key words. If you're at home, you can go grab a Bible off the bookshelf or from under the couch, which is holding your couch up parallel. 1 Corinthians 15 reads this way. And remember, it's Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Now I would remind you, I reminded you last week about the importance of reminding I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. The gospel has past, present, and future benefits. 
if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and the Twelve. We talked last week about reminding. We talked last week about gospel equaling good news, but good news not equaling the plan of salvation. We will talk this week about Jesus dying on the cross. We will talk next week about Jesus resurrecting from the grave. We will cover these things, but we wanted to remind you last week and over and over again that Jesus dying on the cross for you and for me is good news. It's just not all of the good news. That it's that, and it's not less than that, but it is more than that. And so we went through this last week, and we said that when when Paul says, in accordance with the Scriptures, he's not talking about Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John just because it comes first in your Bible. It wasn't there at all. There were no Gospels in accordance to Matthew or John or Luke. Paul had not put his letters together. John does not have the revelation yet at the end of your Bible. When he says, in accordance with Scriptures, he's talking about your Old Testament, the old covenant. And so I want to dig in this week to verse 3, because Paul said, I delivered to you that which is of first importance, and anything that is of first importance to Paul ought to be of first importance to us. It ought to deserve some attention. And I want to open up to you just a couple words, and we'll spend our time on these words. Christ died for our sins. We won't do anything more than that. Christ died for our sins. The first thing I want you to see in that, and again, this is where a paper Bible is handy, the word Christ. Circle the word on your iPad, just tap it twice and hit highlight. Christ died for your sins. It is interesting to me, and it might not be interesting to you, that Paul says Christ died for your sins. He does not say Jesus died for your sins. I don't know how you pray. I don't know how you talk. I don't know how your language goes. But rarely do I sit down at the supper table with the family and our little house on the prairie image of holding hands and praying with our perfect pastoral family with no flaw. Oh, sorry, I stop. I'm, I'm into full, bold-faced lies now. I never bow my head and say, Christ, it is I. I say Jesus. Do you say Jesus? I say Jesus. When I pray, I invoke the name of Jesus because that is his name. But when Paul writes this, he does not say Jesus died for our sins. He says Christ died for our sins, as in Jesus Christ. But I think for a lot of the church and a lot of the world, they say Jesus Christ like they would say A.J. Plazier, like Jesus is his first name and Christ is his second name. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's not like it could have been Jesus Christ or Jesus Dontremont. It's not like that. It is a title. It is Jesus the Christ. When, he said, when we say Jesus Christ, we are saying Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Anointed One, or even better, Jesus the Messiah. So it's interesting to me that when Paul wants to roll out the gospel and zero in on the cross, he does not say, oh, and the carpenter, that son from Nazareth, oh, that young man who was a hard worker, had a great dad, that, that dude died for us. He does not want to invoke imagery 
of the man Jesus dying, he wants to invoke imagery of the Messiah dying. He could have easily said, Jesus of Nazareth died for our sins, and that would have been well and good, but Paul's better than that. Because he wants you and I to read that and go, Messiah. See, this is where our Canadianness lets us down. And if there's some Jewish people in this room, imagine being the Jewish nation. Imagine hearing your Messiah has come. They were waiting for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for the Messiah to come, to place them back on top. And Paul says, your Messiah is here and he is Jesus. And he's here and while he's here, he died now, I don't know how long you've waited for something, but I haven't waited for anything for multiple hundreds of years. I have a hard time waiting for things multiple weeks. They waited and waited and waited for this Messiah to come. And Paul says, he's come. He is found in Jesus and he's dead. See, that's not how you talk about the Messiah, right? When you say the Messiah shows up, you say, and Christ, the Messiah, has rule, is ruling and reigning. The Messiah conquered his enemy. The Messiah showed up and defeated his foes. There is supposed to be winning and victory, not death and dying. You're supposed to say your hero has arrived on the scene and all will be well in the world. Imagine with me. Rocky won. And Rocky Balboa, my hero and yours, gets in the ring. Ding, ding. Creed walks out and lays him down, round one. Roll credits. Movie two, he faces Creed again. Movie three, Mr. T should have knocked him out, agreed? But not when you're the hero. When you're the hero, you can take punch after punch after punch, and you will win because you're the hero. Not even Drago could take him down. Not even the best that Russia had to throw at Rocky could beat Rocky. It's it's the same thing in all the Marvel movies, right? They they all these heroes, Captain America and Spider-Man and Miss Marvel, whatever their names, and on and on, and the Hulk shows up. Imagine the the Hulk showing up and Thanos grabbing him, just ripping him in half, and the movie's over. He just tears Captain America apart. He be like we know when the hero shows up, the word is not, and Thor arrives and dies. That's not how heroes come on the scene. So Paul thanks for telling us the Messiah has come and telling us he's dead. It's not just that he's dead. See, it's it's one thing to say your Messiah died. It's another thing to know that the Messiah dying was dying by way of the cross. Now, we haven't crucified anybody in Yarmouth County in a long time, although tensions are rising. In 500 BC, the Persians thought this. How could we kill people worse? Not better, worse. We know how to kill people. How do we make dying worse? What kind of people ponder at a table and think, let's make dying harder? And they invented this thing called the cross. 
and they would hang people on it. The Romans would come along later and perfect the art of the crucifixion. When you say the word, this is excruciating, you are saying by via that using that word, this is like dying on a cross. So the next time you whine about my man cold and your man cold, saying it's excruciating, you are using the same word as saying this is just like dying on a cross. They got around a table and said, let's make it worse. And the Romans said, let's perfect that. And for 800 years, from 500 BC until 300 AD, 300 years after Christ, people were being crucified by the hundreds and thousands. We sometimes think in the church that Jesus was special. Like he got crucified. No, lots of people did. It wasn't reserved for him. It was reserved for the worst, scummiest, lowest people of society. Can you imagine being sentenced to death, but knowing you were sentenced, but you're better than that guy's sentence, so you don't have to be crucified. You can just die swiftly. But you are so scum of the earth. We reserved a special way to end your life. And they perfected it. Now, this is not the part of the sermon where I regale you with blood and gore. Mel Gibson did that for you and for me in The Passion of the Christ. You can watch that later tonight. <laughs> That's not my purpose tonight. I don't want to get into how somebody was crucified. I want to tell you what the point of crucifixion was. You can look up what it was, but you must ask yourself, why? Why on earth would people do this to other people? And when they invented crucifixion, it wasn't just to end your life. It was to shame you at the end of your life. You were most often crucified naked and in public square. This isn't like we drive you out to Quinnon <laughs> and crucify you in the backwoods. This is like we drive you to the mall parking lot on Stars Road and put up a cross in the mall parking lot, hang you there naked. And you don't die quickly, you die most often from suffocating. And then you stay there and stay there and stay there until your remains are picked up and taken out to the hard scratch to the dump and tossed on a pile. It, it was no honorable death. It was to shame the one crucified and the followers of the one crucified. It was always public. They wanted not just to shame the person, but to send the message reverberating through the followers, if you keep going, this is your future. You want to follow this thief, this criminal, this Messiah? We have more crosses with your name on them. It was to disperse anybody's followers, Jesus and anybody else. Thirdly, they always raised them up. See, a lot of times the people who were crucified were people who were trying to rise up, trying to start something, trying to push a rebellion, trying to gather the troops and push against the authority. And so when the authority wanted to flex the most, they would take you, shame you, hang you, and then you want to rise up, we will rise you up real good so everybody can see what happens when you flex against Rome. So you can get into the blood if you want, but there is a purpose behind crucifixion. 
And they said, you, this Jesus of Nazareth, this King of Kings, you want to see what we can do to you? We will flex back. And he was crucified. So the obvious question, the question that you should be asking and I should be answering is, Pastor, tell me again why this is good news. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure I saw that cute little graphic that said simply good news. And so far you told us the hero died in the most excruciating, shameful way in human history. When we go to the Bible and we read where Paul says, Christ died for our sins. That word sins is an interesting word, isn't it? Depending on where you were brought up and when you were brought up, that word either means something or means nothing. Once upon a time, the word sins meant to do something against God's standard or to miss God's glorious standard. So when Adam, or when Adam and Eve were in the garden and God said, I have prepared for you this incredible garden. You can eat, you can enjoy, you can go kayaking, you can do whatever you want. But do you see this one tree over here? I don't want you to eat from this one tree. And all Adam and Eve had to do was say, God, we will uphold your glorious standard. You have provided everything we need and then some. And all God asked was, then enjoy it's interesting to put sin in the context of God saying, I'm trying to help you enjoy. See, we think of sin as, man, why is God so lame? Why does God draw, draw, draw a box around all the things that I would like to do when nobody's watching? <laughs> why is God like that? It's like, no, no, no. God set creation up for our delight and our joy. And he said, I do have boundaries. And we said, no, thank you. See, sin is saying, God, we see what you're doing, and we don't want that. We see how you've set this up, and we reject it. We don't want this. And so, depending on where you grew up, the idea of sinning against God was kind of commonplace. I don't know all your stories, but I was raised just knowing that we all sinned. I was just kind of like, yeah, I, I've got a pretty healthy view of who I am and who God is, and you're telling me I fall short of God? I believe that to be true. <laughs> you preach that today, and you get laughed out of a church. You try to tell new visitors, like, hey, we're all sinners. We fall short of God's standard. Like, so? God who? See, we once had an authoritarian culture, and the assumption was that there's a God out there. And the assumption was, I'm not as good as he is. So tell me how I close that gap. Well, that's long gone. And so when Paul says, died for our sins, the first trigger word is sins. The second trigger word is our. What do you mean our? What did I do? No, we are born sinful. That is, a, that is a flawed concept today, that we are losing the picture, the reality, that we are born sinful and we do sinful things. I've said this to you before and I'll say this again. Nobody will ever have to prove this to me. I have children. I will never, ever, ever lose an argument about the sinful nature of humanity. We are not born just good. We are born in the image of God and there's a little sinful bent there. Yesterday morning, my wife told our youngest child, no. Yeah. Yeah. I kid you not. No, I'm going to burst this bubble. You all think I have this perfect home, and I'm going to ruin it on you now. That kid laid in his bed 
and screamed like I was pulling his toes off one by one with pliers for about 15 minutes. Screamed. Blood-curdling screams. The fact the RSMP didn't show up really makes me question my neighbors. <laughs> that whatever was happening in our house did not trigger them in any way, shape, or form. Or whatever happened in our home was way too normal. <laughs> Oh, it's just the pastor's home again. <laughs> Julius said no. And Nolan melted and screamed for about 15 minutes. And I stayed super calm. Bold face lie. <laughs> the visual images of the things that I wanted to do to him while he screamed for 15 minutes and disrespected his mother and my wife was sinful on its own. <laughs> you, don't, you will never convince me that we are not born sinful, and out of that sinful nature, we will do sinful things. And this puts us at odds with God. I read that, I'm like, Paul, you are spot on. Paul, I don't care what the media says. I don't care what Twitter says. I don't care what Facebook says. I don't care what my cra crazy Aunt Ruth says on Facebook. Paul, you're, you're dropping truth here that we are sinful. But the good news, all this culminates, this whole sermon culminates when Paul says, Christ died for. Christ died for our sins. Not for the advantage of them, because of them. The good news is that Christ died because of and for my sins and your sins. Now, the part that I want to spend just, just a couple seconds hopefully tinkering with you a little bit is that when we say the phrase, Christ died for our sins, most often we kind of jump to John 3.16. Like, oh, yeah, for God so loved the world. That is good. God so loved the world, he sent his one only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will have eternal life. Like, I am so glad Jesus died for my sins, and because I have faith in him, because of his grace, I'll go to heaven one day. And I say to you over and over through this series, it is that and so much more. It's not less than Jesus died for me and for you, and it's not less that because of his grace and your faith in his grace and forgiveness that you will spend eternity with him one day. But I'm going to tell you once, I'm going to tell you a thousand times, the gospel is bigger than Jesus dying for your sins and you get to go to heaven one day. And that's good news. When you open the Bible, you absolutely find that Jesus died for you and for me. But when you go into Colossians, you read that Jesus triumphs victoriously over the evil rulers and authorities and breaking the power of sin over us. Because of what Jesus did on the cross and our faith in him, we don't have to live trapped in sin. You don't have to live trapped in your sinful habits, that there is forgiveness and freedom. What is the point of being forgiven if you're trapped perpetuating like Groundhog Day, the same things day over day over day over day? That's not good news. Titus tells us that we are reminded that Jesus redeems us, that he claims us as his own, 
that because of the cross, you are brought into God's family. And because you are in God's family, you get all of the blessings of having God as your father and you being a son or daughter. There's forgiveness and there's family. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite verses from Paul, teaches us that we are righteous before God. Now, church people have no problem being righteous. But this is not a righteousness of our own. This is not based on our resume, or this is based because we wear, like a new coat, Christ's righteousness. Which means you stand and you worship and you enjoy Christ. It has nothing to do with your day today. It has nothing to do with your past or your tomorrow. It has to do with Jesus wrapping himself around you and claiming you as his own. Amen. <laughs> Romans chapter 3. Paul tells us, that we don't have to hide or tiptoe to God. That we stand justified because Jesus paid the debt that we could not. Church, this is a huge one. There are so many Christians who are doing the, oh, like, God, it's me again. Hey, 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 to bother you, but if you wouldn't be so busy, do you think I could slide in a quick prayer today? What are you doing? I already told you that through the cross, you have the privilege of being a son or daughter of the king. And because of what, of what Romans 3 tells us, that, that we're justified, that you can actually stand before God, not because of your resume, we already hit this, but you can stand before God and say, God, I have something to ask of you. My kids never come to me sheepishly. Never. They come running and boldly approach their father with their requests. I like to see some church people, some Christians, boldly approach God with their requests and their needs. God, it's me, your most annoying child. God, it's me. Remember, I was here yesterday. You said come, so I'm back. There's forgiveness and there's justification. First John tells us that the good news is that we don't carry our sin around in our backpack. That if we let Jesus, he'll remove and cleanse us of our sins. There's forgiveness and healing and wholeness. So many Christians come to the altar, pray to God, ask for their sins to be forgiven, then chuck it in a backpack and wear it around the rest of the night, week, month, or their life. And somehow they believe this nonsense once a whatever, always a whatever. I know I'm forgiven, but people don't forget. I know I'm not, I know I get that, but I, you know, to show God I mean business, I better haul this thing around with the rest of my life. Letting him know that I didn't forget or I didn't take it not seriously. God, I get it. Ephesians 4 tells us, that if we read this chapter, that there is power in Jesus' death on the cross to set us on a new path, allowing us to walk in the newness of life. There is, for, for, uh, bleh, bleh. There is forgiveness and newness of life. Which means when you come to the cross, you are not just forgiven, you are forgiven and then set on a new path. That your past does not predetermine your future. Well, pastor, I've done a lot of things. Great, you don't have to keep doing them. Pastor, I've done a lot of stuff. Okay, it's over. It's at the foot of the cross. Yeah, but people know. Whose opinion do you care about? That God is inviting you to walk in newness of life, that you can be forgiven, but Christ has so much more for the church. 
most of us had Thanksgiving weekend this past weekend. I presume you did. I know I did. And there was such a good analogy that most of us participated in. I went to a Thanksgiving dinner on, uh, on Friday and Monday, because I could. <laughs> and I went to Thanksgiving dinner on Monday. And I walked in, and there was this incredible buffet table of food prepared before us. Now, I should not be your example, because I went to the to the, to the buffet with the biggest plate I could find and grab the most turkey I could get on my plate. That's really all I cared about. <laughs> Dave Hockley was there. My Dave Hockley and your Dave Hockley. Dave Hockley grabbed a plate and went to the Thanksgiving buffet like he was going to the electric chair the next day. <laughs> he grabbed four of everything. I think he put his back out carrying his plate from the buffet table to the actual table as he waddled across the kitchen and plopped it down and pulled out his fork. He didn't say a word for 38 minutes. And here I am like a sucker just enjoying some turkey. Now I'll have you know, turkey's pretty good. I like protein, I like meat, I like turkey. But I looked over at Hockley, and Hockley was feasting on everything. And I wonder how many Christians come to church, and like, man, I just want to be forgiven. Like, well, yeah, that's turkey. That's great. Man, forgiveness is awesome. That you come to Christ tonight, all the junk that you, you think and you believe and you know separates you from God, that actually can be forgiven. That's some good turkey news. But if you had good mashed potatoes in a while and carrots and apple pie and apple crumble and cookie, like, like God has a feast prepared for us and we settle for turkey. Church, there might be some people in this room that you have been thankful that Jesus died for you and that your sins are forgiven, but you're confused as to why you keep doing the sins. Because you're not realizing that another part of the gospel is like the mashed potatoes. Well, yeah, you're forgiven, but have some potato. There's freedom in them potatoes. And then some of you are wondering like, okay, like I'm forgiven. Maybe I'm not doing anymore, but I just feel out of place. Oh, do you not, do you not have any carrots? The carrots remind you that God redeemed you into his family. Your feelings must submit themselves to the fact that God has invited you into his family. See, the problem is you believe certain things to be true, and that's great. You just don't believe enough things to be true. That God has prepared a feast for you and for me. And he invites you and says the good news is that through the one man, Jesus the Christ, I have prepared a buffet of good news. Come and feast. Enjoy. Partake. Come and get to know what I have for you. And load up your plate. Our God is not stingy. Amen?